0: Welcome to the New Zealand Initiative Podcast. We're joined this week by Dr Oliver Hartwich, our Executive Director, who earlier this week attended his New Zealand Citizenship Ceremony. Hi Oliver and congratulations.
1: Thank you, Kiora.
0: How does it feel to to be a Kiwi?
1: Uh, Finally arrived, I guess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I guess um, I thought today we could have a chat about your journey to becoming a Kiwi and why New Zealand and how you got here really.
1: Okay, let's start. Where should we start? Germany. Germany, yeah, interesting country. Um I happened to be born there. Um all those years ago, seventy-five. I grew up in Germany and um I spent the first twenty eight years of my life in Germany, with about one year exception when I studied for my PhD in Sydney. Um and I think I had never really planned to leave Germany. It just happened.
0: Doing so doing your PhD in Sydney did that. Was it part of the reason you decided to move there?
1: No, it was a bit more complicated. It's my wife. It's my wife's fault. <laughs> so
0: it always is. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it is. It, it just happened. Um, I learned foreign languages at school. I started with a really useless one, Latin. Um, I couldn't talk to anyone in Latin. Um, I had this from year five. I still think Latin is a fantastic language to learn, but. Um, Practically, relatively limited. And um, from year seven, I had English. And um, I wanted to learn more English than just my school English. And that's why I wanted to have pen friends. And uh, I ended up with a pen friend in Australia. It's a very long story how I got this pen friend. But anyway, this pen friend is not my wife. And so we were 16. We started writing to each other and uh, we wrote really long letters. We had a pen friendship for eight years and then we met. We finished a pen friendship, and we had a long-distance relationship instead. And that was why I started in Australia. So it was actually, um, yeah, it it was my wife, and she drew me to Sydney. And I spent about a year at the Sydney University Law School. Then I returned to Germany, finished my PhD. And then the two of us, we decided uh, we needed to finally live together somewhere. And that compromise happened to be. London because she could easily get a visa and I didn't need one because at the time Britain was still part of the EU um, that would be different today so we moved to London we had a good time in London four and a half years and then at the end of that time we decided we wanted to have a bit of a better quality of life again and ironically my wife was really keen on Berlin and I was really keen on Sydney so we wanted to move to each other's countries and um no. Yeah, Um, I I got job offers from both Berlin and Sydney. The best job offer came from Sydney. And so we moved to Sydney.
0: And that was at the Think Tank CIS?
1: Yeah. So in London, um, I was at um, Parliament first. House of Lords for a while. And then at Policy Exchange, Think Tank. So um, the next job in Sydney was also a Think Tank because I had Think Tank experience, which was fantastic. And um, so I worked at CIS. And we were there in, in Sydney for three and a half years. I was um, at CRS, um, research fellow in the economics program. It was great fun. I also became a columnist for the Business Spectator, which was an online magazine at the time in Australia, which was also great fun because I could write about European affairs and the eurozone and the euro crisis. So um, I wrote about 300 columns on that. Um, it was basically always the same column, just the country names changed, and um, we would have. Lived happily ever after in Sydney. And then I got a call from New Zealand. The the offer was, um, or the the question rather, would you be interested in potentially leading a think tank in New Zealand? And um, that sounded interesting, except I didn't know New Zealand. Well, kind of. I had spent um, two short visits in this wonderful country of ours and um, always on speaking engagements um, as a guest of the business roundtable back then. So um, I've been to Auckland and Wellington, and I spent about a couple of days in each of them. Um, And that's as much as I knew about New Zealand, roughly. And so the offer came, and um, I thought, that sounds rather interesting. And um, without really thinking much about it, suddenly I had this job, and suddenly I was in New Zealand, and I'm a citizen.
0: So what is it about think tanks Uh, The thing about think tanks is
1: um, it gives you a lot of freedom if you do it properly. So um, you can be a bit of a journalist without having the pressures of journalism. You can be an academic, but you can also have an impact, which is a bit strange for academics because usually academics write for themselves and for obscure journals that nobody ever reads. Um, You might have more of an influence actually in think tank land than as a politician, or at least as a backbencher. So my former boss in London, um, he he set up policy exchange, and afterwards he became uh, an MP. He was a minister for a while, and he always said that he thought that as a think tank leader, he had much more influence than as a minister. So uh, think tanks can actually provide quite an interesting work environment if you really want to change the world, and um, I got attracted by that. I really liked it in London. I liked it in Sydney. I liked it here. I really got hooked on the idea. And um, I've always enjoyed it. And so, when the opportunity came up to lead a think tank rather than to work at one, of course, I grabbed it.
0: And is there one particular policy area that you've seen to have carried through from London to Sydney to here that you're that you're still fighting for?
1: Yes, obviously housing. Uh, that was my first job in think tank land in London. Um, my first project was housing affordability, and London was ridiculously expensive. I mean, it's even worse today. But when I arrived in London from Germany, I just couldn't believe how expensive it was to just rent a normal flat. We had a flat in Hammersmith, um, not the fleshy suburb I would say. We were about uh, 30 meters from the A40, and it was old, it was uh, quite small, and we still paid a very substantial rent. And Mm -hmm. uh, that, that came as a bit of a surprise to me, so when I got this housing project with Policy Exchange, I tried to figure out what's wrong with the housing market here, and I just, try to compare with uh, what's happening in other countries that have actually kept their housing markets a bit more stable so yes this became a passion of mine and as I said until 2005 I'd never worked in housing before but then I carried that with me to my jobs in Australia and now to the initiative here.
0: And I guess being a think tank and having that freedom also gives you the opportunity to keep writing about international affairs.
1: Yeah, um, that really came out of the column I wrote for the Business Spectator in Australia. So let me tell you what happened there. When I worked in London, I was not allowed to write about the European Union because I worked for quite a conservative think tank. I mean, party politically conservative, conservative party think tank. And the British conservatives had made really bad experiences with talking about Europe. Um, under Margaret Thatcher and John Major. So talking about Europe was difficult. And so the informal guidance for us at Policy Exchange was just avoid the E-word. It's just really dangerous. You don't want to go there and all sorts of things might happen afterwards. And um, as a good German, of course, I played by the rules and I never talked about Europe when I was at Policy Exchange, even though... I was probably quite Eurosceptical even though I'm German and um, then I moved to Australia and it happened to coincide with the beginning of the Euro crisis you know when Greece went belly up basically and um, they had problems and um, I wrote a really angry column or actually an op-ed at the time about the European Union's crisis management so freed from the shackles of working for a British conservative think tank I could finally say what I really thought about the European Union so I Placed this with the Business Spectator and about a day later, I got a call from Alan Kohler, the editor of the Business Spectator, and he told me, oh, that was a really interesting column. Would you like to write this more often? And I said to Alan, yeah, what do you have in mind? Maybe a weekly column on that euro crisis while the crisis lasts. And um, I foolishly agreed to that. And... um, and I kept writing these columns about Europe and the euro crisis until the business spectator ceased to exist. So they got swallowed by the Australian newspaper. And that's when my column came to an end. And um, by that time, I had written about 300 columns about this euro crisis. And honestly, by the time the business spectator folded, I was quite glad about it because... I really had enough writing about Europe because um, it was getting tedious writing about the flaws of the euro currency and about the flaws of the European Union. I mean, even as a eurosceptic, at some stage it got too much for me. So I was glad. I enjoyed my uh, regained Monday evenings, again, when I typically wrote my columns. And then after about a couple of years of abstinence from European affairs, I thought "Mm, maybe it would be quite nice to actually start writing about that. Again, I ran into Bernard Hickey. And Hickey, of course, um, started Newsroom. Mm -hmm. And I told him about my previous column for the Business Spectator. And I said it would be nice to kind of start this again. Maybe not quite as extreme as I did in Australia. Maybe not weekly, fortnightly. And Bernard liked the idea. And so I started writing for Newsroom. And the brief was exactly the same as with the Business Spectator. I can write whatever I like as long as it's about Europe. Actually, I had a bit of a different brief as well for the Business Spectator because there was a time after about 150 columns or so where I said to them, well, look, I think I'm constantly gloomy about Europe and the euro. Can I write something a little bit more optimistic for a change? And my editor at the time told me, no, 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 don't do that because you just confuse the readers. So. Um, I, I was just um, sticking to that line and I'm still writing Eurosceptical columns annoying the European Commission and the European Commission's representation in Canberra and Canberra probably in Wellington as much. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm commenting on European affairs and again, that's one of those um, nice side effects of working in a think tank that you can do that because otherwise I think no other columnist would get away with writing about Europe because who cares?
0: And I guess there is still a lot to be said about what's happening In New Zealand?
1: Yes. There are things happening in New Zealand. (laughs) So, what Every now and then.
0: Every now and then. So what's next for the initiative?
1: Well, I think you're really asking what I learned in nine years in New Zealand. Well, this country could be paradise. And uh, in some ways it is. I mean, people are nice and the landscape is wonderful and it's a very uh, relaxed lifestyle, at least if you're living in the right kind of suburbs. But this country could be doing so much better. So... uh, the thing is actually my colleagues in Germany they think that New Zealand is this kind of semi-paradise. Everything is fine, everything is wonderful and it's a dream destination for migrants. thing is actually if you're living here you find out that well, it's a pretty good country but it could be quite a bit better. And so what I found out in the last few years living here is that there are a few things that definitely deserve improvement. One, the issue that we have already talked about housing. I think it's It's a bloody unaffordable country, Um, on par with Britain, perhaps even worse these days. So I think we need to make housing a lot more affordable. And it is actually staggering that in a country like New Zealand, I mean, the physical size of Italy, we haven't managed to keep housing more affordable. We're only using about 0.8% of the land in New Zealand for development. And yet we have the most unaffordable house prices in the world something's not quite right here. So I would like to change that because I think it's a scandal that ordinary New Zealanders can't afford their homes anymore. The second issue that I've actually come across, which surprised me because I didn't really see it like that from the outside is education. So really 20 years ago when the first PISA study came out, New Zealand and Australia were seen as global leaders in education alongside with Finland, for example. Well, nobody would say that anymore. New Zealand has actually been relegated to a kind of a average country in the OECD rankings perhaps on some measures even a little bit worse than average so I think we've got a lot to do to really get education up again and to make it world class once again and over the years um, we've worked on education issues at the initiative we looked into teacher quality and teacher education um, school performance management but also the curriculum and now that um I can see it actually with our son. He's eight years old. He's going to a primary school in Wellington. I, I think I've got an idea what's going on in the education system and also what's perhaps wrong with the education system. Uh, so I I think we should actually have a um, greater focus on on content, on, on actual knowledge, on learning, rather on just this kind of um, social skills, 21st century skills approach that is very fashionable these days but that doesn't actually serve our kids too well. So um, I would like to see a bit more academic excellence. And I think this would benefit all children in New Zealand, especially those from less privileged backgrounds, because let's face it, if you're growing up in a relatively privileged environment, of course, you're getting a a lot of education and knowledge from your parents and from your environment. But if you're coming from a less privileged background, um, school is the only chance to make up for that. Mm And I think this is not happening in New Zealand.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of work to still be done, so it sounds like you are with us for the long long haul, which is great. Well,
1: it looks like that um, as long as um, our board likes to keep me here. Um, no, I mean seriously, I, I like this job. I like the challenge. I mean uh, <laughs> New Zealand is a country with a lot of challenges for economists. Um, th- there is a lot of work to do the same time I would say that um, it feels better at least having this citizenship now because before that I felt a little bit like an imposter. So you're coming as an outsider telling Kiwis what to do so it feels good to finally be one of them. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm speaking to myself and I feel part of this community and I want this country to succeed. I want this country to be better. I've always wanted that but actually now that I have this New Zealand citizenship I feel like I've got a greater stake in this country.
0: And we're very glad to have you. And you're lucky you don't have the accent.
1: Well, um, that is a big disappointment. See, I got this certificate now and it certifies that I'm a proper Kiwi and a proper New Zealand citizen. Um, It doesn't certify that I have lost my accent, which is really a shame. I'm I'm trying to get rid of it. I'm always flattered when people who I've never met before ask me whether I was Irish or Austrian or... um, Canadian or anything else, as long as they don't say German, it's fine with me.
0: So, I guess to end there, maybe we could test test your Kiwiness.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Please, no questions about rugby.
0: Okay, what is your favorite Kiwi food?
1: Um, well, um, this kind of fusion stuff. Actually, I must say, my favorite Kiwi restaurant happens to be a Spanish restaurant, it's down in Featherston Street and it's called Avida. Mm-hmm. So, um, if you want to meet me on any given day of the week, just have a look at Avida. I might be there. Um, the restaurant scene in Wellington is fantastic. I, I don't have a specific uh, favourite Kiwi food, but I must say that the Wellington restaurant scene is fantastic and um, also the coffee scene, of course.
0: Of course. Onion dip, yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Sure. Um, uh, together
1: with proper cheese rolls, right?
0: That's right. You've passed the test. And...
1: That was a South Island test, right? Yes, it yeah, was. Yeah, okay, good.
0: Do you have a favourite Kiwi saying?
1: Not really. I mean, good as gold is pretty fine. Um, I'm I'm not sure whether that really captures my mood, but anyway, um, (laughs) something like that.
0: Thanks for sharing that with us, Oliver. Um, Congratulations again on becoming a Kiwi. Thank you. We're very glad to have you here. Yeah, there's plenty more work to be done here at the Initiative, so keep an eye on our website for all of our upcoming research, nzinitiative.org.nz.